Hear the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Listen to the nations here. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of the Libyan that belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others said, mocking them, They are filled with new wine. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us as we open up, uh, as we begin to hear from God's word together. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would teach us during this time, on this special Sunday, by your Spirit, In your power, would you communicate your mighty works through this messenger? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing on in our series in the book of Acts, which we started two weeks ago. And so today we come to Acts chapter 2, nicely timed for Pentecost Sunday. And we're learning that God is on the move. God is not a God who stays stagnant. He doesn't just sit in one place and wait for people to come to him. He is active and he is moving and he's at at work and he's active in this place too. He is in a pursuing path towards each one of us in our lives. And by his Holy Spirit, he can track down any one of us, no matter how fast we're trying to run the other direction. God is on the move. He's around the move around the world, on the move around the world, and nations that we've already prayed for today. So as we continue on this morning in Acts, I I just want to pick up where the children's story left off. I loved how it was communicated this morning, this idea of waiting at a window, waiting for a delivery to come. Has anybody been doing that recently? It's, maybe it's a little different in today's age, like you can, people give you tracking numbers now. I was waiting for a package to arrive on Friday, and I went to the UPS website every hour and just kept hitting refresh and inserting the tracking number, waiting for it to come. Where are you? Oh, you're in Salem now. Oh, it's, it's almost here. And unfortunately, that package never arrived. I think it's because it was coming to the church and I wasn't here to receive it. Maybe it's going to come back on Monday. But all of us have this, this feeling of waiting for something to arrive. When you order something and you're waiting for it to arrive. And again, today we have some technology where you can track it a little bit more. Don't you wish maybe the disciples had that capability of a tracking number for the coming of the Holy Spirit? Remember Jesus in Acts 1 said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Go to Jerusalem. Wait there until he is to arrive. But that's all the instructions they got. They didn't get an update of, oh, now he's, now he's descending from heaven. Or now he's, now he's in the clouds. Or now he's, no, it was just, he's going to come. 
and be patient and wait in obedience and in faith. And the disciples did that. They listened and they went to Jerusalem in obedience and in faith. The word that stuck out to me most this week as I reread this famous chapter, Acts chapter 2 again, is the word in Acts 2 verse 3, rest. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. The Holy Spirit didn't just come on them. It rested on them. And that's something that I'd like to unpack for us in our short time this morning. So in that verse, in verse 3, there's two things that happen. It says these flaming tongues of fire were divided and they appeared to them. And then they rested on them. So first thing is it says they appeared. So they could see something. I hadn't hadn't really thought about this before. They, They saw something happening in front of them. And it's not literally fire, but that's the best way they could describe it. They said it was, it was divided tongues as if it were like fire. That's the best way they could describe it. It, was, was a, it looked like fire. That's the best they could describe it. But they saw it somehow. They, they, had, they, had, they had visible evidence of seeing something coming onto them. It was an appearance. And that's important for us in faith to see tangibly things. That's a gift from God to see that, okay, it's literally something you can see. And sometimes God gives us that same ability as well. But more so, and what I'm going to focus all this sermon on today is the second part, which is that whatever it was that they saw, it rested on them. It sat, it sat down on them. That's the literal translation. The Holy Spirit sat down on the believers. It rested on them as, a, as if it was sitting down. It's the same word that when Jesus gets the donkey on the triumphal entry to go into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It says, and he sat down on the donkey or the colt. It was a colt that had never been sat on before. It's the same word. Just as the Holy Spirit was sitting down on the disciples, Jesus sat down on the donkey. It's the same word. It's also the same word that's used most, in the most of the ways it's used throughout the scriptures after this is to refer when Jesus ascends back up into heaven. So we talked about the ascension that Jesus had last week where he disappeared from their sight, went back up into heaven. And what does he do when he gets back, gets back up into heaven? He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And that's mentioned at several places throughout the scriptures. Mark 16, 19. And then in Hebrews, it's mentioned four times. Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 8.1, Hebrews 10.12, Hebrews 12.12. And then finally in Revelation 3.21, where is Jesus now? He is sitting down at the right hand of the Father. He is resting next to the Father. What does that mean? What does that imply, that he's resting next to the Father? His work is finished. His work is done. He has accomplished salvation for the world, and he is at rest. It's kind of like when Jesus created the world in seven days, six days, and on the seventh day, he rested because his work was complete. This is what Pentecost Sunday reminds us. Jesus' work is finished on the cross. He has accomplished victory for his people, and now he is sitting and resting at the right hand of the Father. But he doesn't just leave it that way. He 
sends his Holy Spirit to come. So what is not happening here? This, I want to get this, make, make sure we're clear here. We sang, we sang a song earlier today about um, praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. We sang about the three in one God, the Trinity. I, I took some time a couple of weeks ago to explain the different functions and activities of the Holy Spirit. But we can't forget that the three work together as one. They are the perfect union of three in one. And so what's not happening here, I want to read a quote from a a theologian. He's actually a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Adonis Vidu is his name. But this is what he says. He says, this is what's not happening on Pentecost. What's not happening is this. He says, because the three act inseparably... We do not have this, uh, this analog of substitution. And what he says is this. He says, The Spirit is not waiting in the wings for the Son to do his thing. The Son does not bow out and leave the field upon his ascension, high-fiving the Spirit on his way up. I love that image. It's not as if Jesus is going up into heaven in the ascension and the Holy Spirit's coming down. They're like high-fiving each other. Like, okay, your turn. That's, he says, that's not, what, that's not what's happening here. He says his promise to be with us forever is true and trustworthy. And so his ascension does not entail his departure any more than his mission implies his arrival. This is the mythical image of three gods climbing up and down the ladder of heaven, which amounts to a mockery of our faith and hope. That's not what's happening. This is not a tag out. He says, no, Christ has ascended in order to fill everything with his presence. In the indwelling spirit, we do not have a second best to the Son, just like as in Christ, we do not have a second best to the Father. More specifically, the spirit we have is precisely the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Son, the one who imprints on us the image of his Son, for he has first filled and transfigured Christ's humanity. Precisely because he is the spirit of Christ, he baptizes us into the body of Christ, and he imparts his sonship to us. The idea here is that the Holy Spirit rests upon the church, and it's the Spirit of the living Christ. So let me give you just a couple of points here this morning to chew on, on this idea of the Holy Spirit resting on us. The big idea is this, is that when the Holy Spirit comes, we, his church, are likewise put at rest. Just as Jesus is resting next to the Father, the church in some way can be at rest when the Holy Spirit comes. So here's the first point. The Holy Spirit resting upon the church creates unity. Profound unity. Unexplainable unity. Unmistakable unity. That's what the Holy Spirit brings. And that's what I think these first 12 verses are really pointing us to, is this unmistakable unity that happens globally. When the Holy Spirit comes, he allows the believers to speak in a way that everybody can understand. And I would argue that today, when Christians speak the gospel, speak in a Christian way, speak of the glories of Christ, the grace and the love and the compassion that is displayed in the gospel, the whole world will understand that because they long for it. That's the simple task of the church. Pentecost is the most unifying event in the history of the world, I think. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, 
the whole world can be united again in one profound way. The Holy Spirit. I've heard Pastor Bob speak about going to places in the world where you don't know anybody, but when you meet believers, you feel at home. And many of you, if you've traveled or spent time in other churches, you feel the same way. It's a remarkable feeling. And it's the Holy Spirit that binds believers together. So just a couple of things here. When you think about Pentecost and you think about uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit, it really is the grand reversal of a story way back in Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. When humanity, they were all speaking one language at the time, and they decided to build a tall tower to try to reach up to God and climb a tower as if they could reach him. And at that moment, God said, let me go down there and confuse their language because they're trying to make a name for themselves, is what they said. So God confused their language and dispersed them over all the earth. And that's where the beginning of language began, according to the scriptures. And at Pentecost, you have 50 days after Easter, all these people coming from all the nations of the earth, it says. Many of them were living in Jerusalem already, these immigrants that came and were living there. But others were traveling into Jerusalem for the Feast of the Harvest or the Feast of Weeks, which again, think about 50 days at seven weeks of seven days, and on the last day, it's the 50th. It's the, the completion of this, perfe- of this perfect biblical number, seven. And these people were coming to commemorate the completion of the grain harvest. Thousands of people were there. 120 disciples were all together in one place. But Jews were living in Jerusalem from every nation. People were from all over. Again, look at those nations that were mentioned in verses 9 to 11. The one that sticks out to me is Arabia. You think about Arabia today, predominantly Muslim people, and you think, oh, they've always been Muslim. No, there were people long before the coming of Muhammad who believed in the one true God because they were there present at Pentecost. Remarkable thought. So this is the grand redemption of the story of Babel, where one language turned into thousands. Now at Pentecost, thousands of languages turn into one. And what's the one language? The language of the Holy Spirit. The language of being a follower of Jesus. And they were baffled. They were amazed and perplexed and a little confused. The Holy Spirit is is unifying the world under a common new language. There's no other unifying force in the world quite like this. This summer, you're going to watch maybe the Olympic Games. They're going to be happening again this year in Tokyo, I think. And you're going to see nations marching around a giant stadium with their flags and their, their colors and their culture. And they're going to be singing songs. And it's going to be a beautiful display of the world, right on display. But that's just a taste of what Pentecost was bringing. The United Nations makes a good attempt to try to bring together leaders and governments from all over the world. But they, they just get a taste of this as well. You can download apps on your smartphone now that, that enable you to talk to people in different languages when you arrive at a different country. But that's just a fraction of what is happening here at Pentecost. Ultimately, all these fall short of true unity because there's no eternal connection. Pentecost is bringing a deep eternal connection with the living God through his Holy Spirit. They were amazed and perplexed at the same time in verse 12, it says. And then finally, some people in verse 12 ask the question that all of us ask. When you first hear the good news, all of us ask this question, or at least we should. What does all this mean? 
What is happening? What does all this mean for us? That's the question we're still asking today. It means that the world has changed forever. The question means that there is hope, there is purpose, there is a way to connect with others in a way that all of us long for, and it's achievable through the unifying voice of the Holy Spirit. That's the first point. The resting of the Holy Spirit on the church brings profound unity. I'm still getting to know a lot of you people. I've only been here five months, but in so many ways, I feel like I've known you my whole life, and that's because of the Holy Spirit. Point number two. The Holy Spirit resting on the church confirms everything we ever thought about Jesus. I said last week that, there, that the book of Acts is known for speeches or sermons of you know, Peter or Paul or Stephen standing up in front of a group of people and doing kind of like what I'm doing, giving a big speech for long you know, verses at a time. And you see the first one here. Peter stands up again. Again, he's the leader of the early church. He stands up. And he begins to give this really beautiful, impassioned speech. And I'd love to spend, you know, an hour talking through each point of this and using all the different scriptures. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize it by saying this. The whole point of it is, from the Holy Spirit, through the Old Testament, through the prophets, through kings, Peter is proving that Jesus is the fulfillment of what all the scriptures were leading towards. All the scriptures were pointing ahead to one person, Jesus. And he is who he says he is. And the Holy Spirit's coming puts the final stamp of approval and assurance on that. Jesus is guilty of being who he says he is. He is the Christ. He is the living God. So Peter uses the prophet Joel, who we heard read about in the children's story, the the coming of the prophecy of of the Holy Spirit. He uses King David in Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. He quotes them in the middle of his speech. All of it ultimately is to prove what he says in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. He points at him and he says, guys, You are the ones who put Jesus to death. But the coming of the Holy Spirit proves to us that he is for certain both Lord and Christ. Why does he emphasize those two things? Lord, he is the authority. He is the boss. He is the chief overseer of all people. He is God himself. He is the king. And he's the savior. He's the humble one who rode in on that donkey. He sat down on the donkey no one had ever sat on. He rode into Jerusalem, sacrificed his life humbly, and was the substitute for our sins. He's the Savior. He's the boss, and he's the servant. He's the king, and he's the substitute. He is the one our souls have longed for. What questions do you have about Jesus, I'm wondering, as we're... We're looking at, you know, first century Jews and the questions they were asking at this, at this festival as they were listening to this speech by Peter. Um, it says that many people mocked the early Christians because of this Holy Spirit. It says that they were filled with new wine, that something crazy must be. There must be another explanation for what's going on here. It can't be that, that this is really happening. It can't be that there's really a Holy Spirit. It can't, believe, it can't be that Jesus really is who he says he was. It's, it's got to be wine. They've got to be drunk. That's, 
I mean, can't you hear modern day people say this? Like, no, he's just, he's just a little loose. He's just a little crazy. Maybe people have told you that before. But what, what questions do you have today? What doubts or concerns do you have? The Holy Spirit confirms deep in our experience that Jesus is who he says he is. But that doesn't mean the questions or doubts won't go away. It's okay to have doubts and questions. It's okay to be wrestling with faith. Even after you've confessed Jesus as Christ. God still wants us to use our minds and our reason and our rationality to arrive at the deep things of God. He's given us those things as gifts. But what should stop, what should stop the minute you trust in Christ is the mockery. The mockery. That's what separates a believer from a non-believer. It's not the questions. It's not the doubts. It's not the wrestling with faith. It's the mockery. Those outside the faith will mock those inside the faith. But those inside the faith, what will they do to the mockers? They will love them unconditionally. They will be patient with them. They will sit with them in their questions. They will take the mocking. They will... They will feel the persecution, even the darts that get thrown their way. They will sit with them. They will love them. Jesus said, love your enemies. And that's what we're called to do. My last point, the Holy Spirit resting on the church. I get these from the last four verses, verses 37 to 41. The Holy Spirit resting on the church turns ordinary people like you and me into missionaries into evangelists, into truth-tellers, into spiritual superheroes in our world because we're doing the work of Christ that he has entrusted to us. Verses 37 to 41 really are the responses. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. I think a modern-day way of saying this would be when they heard this, their breath was taken away. Maybe that's an expression we use more today. We don't hear a lot of expressions today of cut to the heart, but we do hear, it was so amazing that it took my breath away. I think that's kind of what's happening here. They saw this, this speech unfold, this plan of redemption through Peter, and their breath was taken away. And ultimately, I think what should come to mind is the prophet Isaiah. Remember him in Isaiah 6? He's ushered into the throne room of God. He comes to see the holiness of God, and he's standing there before him, and what does he say before anything happens? He says, smoke is filling the air. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he says, for I am lost, get this. When he says, I am lost, standing before God, that's actually the same word that's being used here when it says they were cut to the heart. It's the same Greek word. Isn't that interesting? These people, are, they hear the word of God proclaimed to them, and it's like everything I've ever thought is now thrown up in the air. I'm now, I now feel lost because of what you've just said, just as Isaiah was before God. I'm lost. Woe is me. Who am I after hearing this news? But what happens to Isaiah after he says that? 
the seraphim comes and touches his lips with a burning coal. And what does it say? It says that he now, his guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. He says, you're now clean. And then God asks, he says, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? Isaiah, here I am, send me, Lord. Wait, weren't you just the guy that said I'm lost? Woe is me. And now you've been touched with a burning coal and now your lips say, here am I, send me. An ordinary person, scared, lost, now a missionary, now a prophet. At Pentecost, when God rests his Holy Spirit on the believers, as if tongues of fire came on them, it turns lost, woeful people like you and me into, here am I, send me, Lord. God is on the move through people like you and me. And for the rest of Acts, you're going to see woeful, lost, ordinary people transformed into missionaries, into prophets, into martyrs, into saints that you and I look at and say, Lord, do the same with me. And he will. And if our church can become people like that, Salem will be transformed for the glory of God. And many people will come to know the risen Christ. That's what Acts 2 does. 3,000 people were added that day. 3,000 people's souls were saved and they became followers of Jesus. And thus the church was born. To conclude, I heard a, someone speak recently about gospel urgency. And they said this. He said, can you imagine if the music of Mozart never made its way around the world, but just stayed in one little town, and the whole world couldn't hear the beautiful symphonies of Mozart? And then he said, can you imagine if the beautiful paintings of Monet just stayed in one little town and never made its way around the world, how much worse off our world would be? Because they'd be missing the beauty of Mozart and Monet. But those paintings and those music, that music has made its way around the world, and the world has been blessed by its beauty. And may it be so with the gospel. May we not keep this beautiful news to ourselves, but may it make its way around our city, around our families, around our friends, around our world, for the glory of God and for the building up of his kingdom. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to use us as we know you delight to, as we know you desire to. What an amazing grace that is to be used by the living God to do your work. What a blessing that will be for us. No longer will it feel like an anxiety or a duty, but it will feel like a joy. The rest of the Holy Spirit on us turns this, this burden to be something or to do something or to, to try to climb a spiritual ladder. It turns it instead into resting, knowing that you're doing the work through us. Lord, make us obedient. Make us faithful that you might be glorified. We ask all this in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.